those struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today. Thank you for joining me here on the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, owner of Circle Social Inc., a strategic consulting and marketing firm for behavioral health and addiction treatment facilities. Today I have Kathleen Murphy as my guest. She is the SVP of Substance Abuse Services at Farnham Center. Farnham Center is a nonprofit treatment program up in New Hampshire uh, that I was had the fortune to visit last fall and they do a fabulous job. They have some amazing results. And what we're gonna be talking about today is actually leading through crisis. So something I think we're all familiar with, with COVID, but we'll get much more deeper than uh, just a simple conversation about how everyone dealt with COVID. Before we get into that, though, I do want to thank our wonderful sponsors and hear from them, Soberlink. Professionals like those that listen to the Recovery Executive Podcast know that technology-assisted care is improving all aspects of healthcare. Addiction treatment is no different. Soberlink is an accountability tool that's helped thousands of people in early recovery. If you haven't heard of Soberlink, it's a discrete alcohol monitoring system with real-time results and reports. You can improve your client's outcomes with the latest technology recommended by four out of five treatment providers. For a limited time and for Recovery Executive Podcast listeners, you can get a free Soberlink device by visiting www.soberlink.com free. And Farnham Center actually uses Soberlink, so they are a great resource to talk to if you want to discuss accountability and how it has helped them achieve very stellar results with their patients and results that are above and beyond what most treatment facilities are able to get, um, which we'll talk a little bit about with Kathleen. But what I really want to talk about here is, as I mentioned, I don't want to get into COVID too much. I think we're all familiar with it and it's a unique point in time, but crisis and leading through crisis is not something that's unique. And it's something that comes up often incredibly unexpectedly. And it does so in a way that really forces us to change the way that we engage and interact, uh, especially our decision-making processes. We have to respond very quickly in a short time frame and operate with a lot less information and a lot less data or rapidly changing data and information than we're used to. And this is a challenge. And so Farnham Center actually uh, had two things going on. COVID hit and then there were certain changes in leadership also happening at the same time. And the team had to work through this and they did a phenomenal job, um, especially with the fact that they are, you know, they're super in a Medicaid population as well as a commercial um, payer client population. And they had to try and meet the needs of both these through everything that I think we're all familiar with was going on. But they did so in in a way that the staff that you talk to um, just has very positive feedback about. And I really want to have Kathleen on just to talk about how they manage that leadership um, you know, in times of crisis, it's not easy. So very excited to have her on. I, I thank her very much for joining us and I think you will enjoy this conversation as well. So let's jump in. Hey, Kathleen, really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show here. Do you want to take a moment to introduce yourself in Farnham? So my name is uh, Kathleen Murphy. I'm the senior vice president at Farnham Center in Manchester, New Hampshire. Um, 
We uh, are a uh, nonprofit uh, treatment center offering a, a full continuum of SUD treatment services from 30-day uh, inpatient treatment, medical detox, intensive outpatient, PHP, outpatient, MAT. Um, so we've been around since the 1980s, um, and we are, you know, one of the, the larger treatment uh, agencies in the state. So a couple of other things I, I want to give some background information on or that I find interesting. So not that it's super relevant, but you guys are also actually part of uh, Easter Seals. Is that correct? We are, yeah. So our parent company is Easter Seals, Easter Seals, New Hampshire, Maine, Vermont. We are part of their organization. That happened, that blend happened in 2008. So uh Farnham Center has been around independently since the early 80s, and that uh, we became part of Easter Seals in 2008. And then you guys also take uh, a certain percentage of Medicaid. So, you know, there are nonprofit facilities that just take commercial insurance, but you guys have a pretty diversified mix of Medicaid versus commercial. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that uh, that mix? Yeah. So, I mean, we, we definitely have a mission to uh, serve anybody struggling with a substance use disorder, regardless of ability to pay. Um, so, you know, that includes folks um, who have Medicaid, uh, that includes folks who are uninsured, uh, and, and we have some state grants to help with that. Uh, not a great reimbursement rate, but nevertheless, <laughs> it helps. Um, and, and then we also have, uh, you know, contracts with all of the large uh, private uh, insurance carriers. Okay. And then the last thing is, you know, a lot of the older nonprofits tend to be pretty traditional in their approach, but your guys' kind of clinical philosophy and approach is a bit different from what I usually see with the, the older nonprofits. Do you just want to give us a little bit of background on the, you know, overall clinical uh, philosophy and approach there at Farnham? Yeah, absolutely. So we utilize what's called the three principles uh, or health realization not anti 12 step, you know, we have 12 step commitments that uh, pre COVID used to come in and, you know, do commitments in our in our residential programs. And uh, but but what we really try to focus on is normalizing a, a client's daily ups and downs and, and by ups and downs, I mean, emotional ups and downs, you know, recognizing that, that we we live life our experience of life comes from the inside not the outside you know that that our thoughts are you know similar to cbt in the sense of you know we we recognize that our feelings come from our thoughts but but rather than really focusing on trying to change uh the thinking we focus on really normalizing the thinking and and having a different relationship to that thought so you know take anxious, you know, thinking, uh, thinking that's, that's causing me to feel a lot of anxiety for our clients. We, we really try to um, just normalize that for them and, and, and to, to try to allow them to see that it's okay to be anxious. Being anxious doesn't necessarily mean uh, it's bad, right? People tend to feel anxious and then they, they start really perseverating on that and feel anxious that they're anxious. And, and so it, it really kind of creates a a barrier. Um, so we're we're focusing on really the the whole the the daily experience of life and and teaching our clients sort of how their human operating system works. Why are they experiencing the things that they're experiencing? You know, separate realities from from you know their spouse. How how they can look at the same situation and see things very very differently, and that both realities are very valid and, and very real. That kind of stuff. It's super interesting, and I think I know I want to get to the the crisis component, kind of the main subject of the talk here. But something that I have a question on that kind of pops up, and I think that people will probably find interesting is so, 
because you are focusing on those three principles and you have a little bit more of an empowerment philosophy um, versus some other programs, you attract some executives uh, to the program. But then at the same time, you also have, you know, Medicaid and people coming off the street. And so those are very different populations. And I was just kind of curious how that plays out in the facility, in the groups, you know, how those two people coming from very different backgrounds and walks of life interact and benefit from the, the program. Yeah, great question. So, so you know, our approach is is true for everybody, right? We are teaching people about the human operating system, the the way we experience life. It's true for you. It's true for me. You know, from the moment we're born to the moment we die, it's it's how we experience life, and 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 we're we're simply pointing clients toward that. So that's true for everybody, but of course, the experiences that each client, you know talks about and has, has, has experienced, has lived through, um, vary, you know, by, by those populations. We've, we've, uh, kind of played different ways with that. We, um, we've had fully integrated programs. We've had, uh, programs that are separated by, uh, gender. We've had programs that are separated more by sort of age demographic or by, by general life experience, maybe, um, professionals maybe in, in one program and, and folks, you know, doing some other types of work in a different program. So we've really kind of gone back and forth trying to figure out exactly the, the, what, you know, the, the right, the right way to do that, what's going to be most effective for everybody. And, and you have people certainly have that business executive who, uh, if, if, if he or she stays for the whole program, we've heard it, uh, you know, a hundred times that, that they say, you know, God, I thought I was so different from all of those people when I first came in. And I'm so glad that I stayed because I realized that I'm the exact same. You know, of course, that's, that's, that's the ultimate goal. I would love for everybody to have that insight. Not everybody's going to. And so sometimes separating the programs by different demographics is, is you know, for sure a, a better way to go. We do have one program right now that, that is separate from, from the rest of our programs and just uh, caters more toward a, a certain demographic um, of client. But the programming, the, you know, the, the education, the didactic groups is all the exact same. Yeah, super interesting. Well, thanks for sharing that. I really appreciate it. When I was there last fall, you know, it's just one of the things that really stood out to me about the program was the fact that you had all these people come from the different walks of life and, you know, the approaches that you guys were bringing into it, I thought were fairly unique, especially for the area. And like I said, just kind of the, the age of the organization, it's a bit of a different philosophy that seems to work very well for all the clients coming in. Yeah, it really does. We have a lot of really good feedback. We have, you know, people saying every day, why didn't anybody, you know, tell me this? This isn't something obviously that's just helping helping them navigate their substance use disorder. This is something that helps them, you know, navigate everyday life and, and their experience through that. It helps enormously in their relationships, in their reactivity. So, you know, depression, anxiety, I mean, we see these symptoms really, really uh, decrease their time here. You know, it's not just your personal opinion or the opinion of the staff there, but you've had the payers come back to you and the payers say, hey, you know, what you're doing here is working really well compared to some other programs based on the data and the claims data we're getting back. So you have external validation, you know, that what you're doing really is effective. Yeah, we sure do. Yes, this isn't just, you know, anecdotal. It's uh, we, we've had some of the, the more major uh, commercial insurance payers come back to us and say, OK, what's going on? What are you what are you doing? Uh, you know, and of course, they they have the benefit of 
of seeing, you know, readmission rates to, to EDs, to other SUD treatment facilities uh, that we don't, you know, we can see readmission rates to our own facilities, but they have the benefit of seeing uh, all of that and, and tracking even compliance with folks following up with their PCP appointments and their mental health appointments and, you know, knowing all of that. And, and that's the stuff that, you know, having a, a lower readmission rate to EDs and other uh, SUD treatment facilities and a higher compliance rate with uh, appropriate aftercare appointments, such as mental health appointments, PCP appointments, et cetera. Uh, that's, that's what has made them approach us. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's a huge deal for the payers. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. for sure. um, but I mean, it's great. You know, I mean, you guys are doing great work and the payers are recognizing that and the outcomes are there for the patients. So that's absolutely, you know, what everyone's looking for. So appreciate sharing that. So let's kind of move into the crisis management, you know, kind of the main focus here. So obviously we're going to be talking about COVID. You guys have also had some leadership changes that you will probably bring into the discussion here, but the main focus is just how do you deal with crisis? And I think when we work with a lot of organizations it's just kind of the natural progression of an organization to kind of do what you've always been doing you get stuck in certain patterns of behavior and decision making so just kind of as a background can you talk a little bit about you know as you guys came into the covid crisis what are some things that you started to see change in the way that you made decisions or what were some ways that you had to change in the way that you made decisions through kind of a crisis versus normal operations yeah you know, it, it, it was, um, obviously, this has been, you know, I think probably a pretty crazy time for, for everybody. We did have some pretty significant changes in leadership right at the start of, of the COVID crisis. So that added sort of an, an extra layer to navigate. But, you know, it, it felt very much at the beginning and, and for a while, like, you know, the, the, the expression we, we were using is, you know, it felt like we were building, building the, the ship as we were sailing it. You know, we, we really, we'd have these meetings that I thought were really, really useful, you know, on a Monday morning. Okay, here's what we're going to do. And we'd make plans and, you know, change uh, SOPs and, and policies to respond. And then literally the next day, the, the CDC would, you know, change or update recommendations and guidelines. And it, and it was like, wow, that, that two hour meeting when I thought we really nailed everything down <laughs> yesterday was completely for naught. So that was super frustrating at, at the beginning. You know, of course, pre-COVID, you know, we're, we're a very data-driven facility insofar as as our programs in, in if we're going to change uh, any of our current programs, if we're going to add new programs, what's working for clients and, and what's not. And, uh, you know, premeditated, of course, of course, balanced decisions. This was really, really different, obviously, in that way that, you know, we didn't know what we were doing, quite frankly. You know, we, we hadn't experienced a, a mass pandemic like this. And uh, the CDC's guidelines and recommendations were changing what seems like, in hindsight, daily. Um, and, and so we were really just struggling to keep up. And, and again, very much felt like we were building the ship as we were sailing. We just we wanted to keep sailing, but we, we kept needing to build that ship as it, as it was sailing. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's a huge challenge in any crisis situation, right, is suddenly decision making has to become very fast and based off of extremely limited data that might not be accurate. Yeah, or right? no data. Yeah. <laughs> or no <Yeah>. data, right. <laughs> so is there anything that you did as a leadership team, you know, that you saw in how you made decisions? Did you guys start having more meetings? Did you make, you know, what requirements did you put in place for a, like a decision making structure? Can you walk through any of that? 
Yeah. So more meetings. Yes. You know, there were meetings every single day. One of the things that was really, really important to us, you know, we have about 150 staff people and we, we knew that it was going to be important. I mean, this was a, this was something that of course, professionally was very difficult to navigate, but at the same time, you know, for, for each of us as, as humans and, and with family lives and um, maybe, you know, older parents or grandparents living in, in our homes. And this was a really scary time for, for people in general. So really wanting, you know, that, that fear to, to be as mitigated as possible at work, we wanted to increase communication to our staff. So at the, be- you know, that was a major focus of ours at the beginning. We ended up implementing very rapidly a morning Zoom meeting with all of our management. So that's about, that was about 25 or 20 people um, across all of our facilities. We have uh, four facilities. Um, So we, that was daily, Monday through Friday, um, every morning checking in, you know, uh, to, to make sure that, you know, we were, you know, where are we at with PPE? Where are we at with staff uh, being out? Because that was a major problem at the beginning. And then at the very beginning, we were sending either from myself, the senior vice president, or or um, or Dennis Terrio, one of our vice presidents. We were sending out uh, an email communication to all of our staff on a daily basis, really trying to let them know of any changes, um, and even just to say, hey, there's no changes today. Uh, if there were no changes, really wanting to keep people in the loop. In hindsight, we we could have done better extending that we we tried to kind of keep up with that as long as we could well you know it's interesting i mean because i think you can just check your your facebook feed for um, the massive amounts of you know misinformation and uncertainty and things like that that come out in any kind of fast evolving situation so how did staff react to that or what did you see as the benefits of kind of communicating on a daily basis of like here's what we know here's what we're doing because of it yeah, it was incredibly appreciated, actually. I mean, in an organization where I think we're really heavy with email, quite quite honestly, we get a lot of emails every day. There's a lot of email distribution groups throughout our company where I thought people were, were, were going to be like, oh, gosh, another email, you know, people were really, really appreciative of, of getting those, of, of receiving those because, yeah, you know, that, that whole game, childhood game of, of telephone and things come out, they see something and, and they think something's changed. Wait, are we, you know, there's so much speculation about what are we, are we stopping admissions? Are we, what are we doing with our detox unit? What are we, you know, and, and lots and lots of rumors going around. And so to have that daily communication from either Dennis or myself saying, this is actually what, what we were doing, committing to them that we were being fully transparent was really, really important as well. I think there was a lot of people who initially suspected like, oh, you know, maybe they're not telling us what their plan is. And just reassuring them that that look, I know it, it may seem that way, I think, because they were they were so used to us being so planful and like really, really knowing what we were doing. And here's the direction based on data that we need to be going in and, and, and prepping everybody in advance. Because we weren't doing that, and it was like, oh, hey, let's. Well, this is changing right now. You know, this is changing today. I, I think a lot of folks thought that we were keeping things, you know, from them, or they know something that we don't, and and really assuring them that that that's not it. We're just trying to keep up with with the CDC guidelines. We will absolutely let you know our plans as as soon as we know them. So yeah, lots of meetings. We had meetings with our executive team of Easter Seals 
So I had all of a sudden many more meetings with our that that parent company, Easter Seals, and you know with with their executive team, and then with our senior leadership team, and then extended to the rest of our management team every single day. That's interesting. You know, I think yeah, I've never I've never had to manage through like a massive crisis like this, so I don't have personal experience per se, but. What I've kind of seen in you know, just minor crises or if there's a lot of change happening in the organization or rapid change is that that's usually a time where overcommunication is valid. You know, overcommunication can get tedious to yeah. employees. Like you said, a lot of emails. Um, but when there's a rapid evolving situation, it tends to be better to overcommunicate than undercommunicate. And I agree with what you said about the staff. I mean, I, I even remember when I was um, running schools in China, you know, we had the H1N1, I think it was a swine, was that swine flu or avian yep. flu? I don't remember, swine flu, I think. But, you know, the rumors that would come out, about, like people would just be scared of eating pork and stuff like that. And I'm like, you guys, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's called swine flu because it originally jumped from pigs to humans, not because you eat it and get it. Right. But, you know, like the rumor mills just start. And if there's not the communication coming from higher up, like then then those lower communication or the gossip channels dominate the communication. Oh, a hundred percent. a problem. When we increased, you know, sanitation, of course, you know, cl- cleaning procedures, all of a sudden, you know, we're, we're washing walls and full offices, you know, multiple times a day. And, and people, you know, I, I, I heard through the grapevine very quickly that staff were speculating, you know, was there a staff person in that office that was positive for COVID? Are they not telling us? And, you know, I'm like, oh my goodness, no. Okay, we were absolutely not, you know, keeping things like that from you. And and that was the other piece too, was that staff staff shortages happened incredibly rapidly for all different reasons. Many for for folks with school age children who had no other choice but to to do the homeschooling. So all of a sudden with with no notice, right, we have we have many staff who are out like indefinitely. <laughs> and then we had, uh, you know, of course, staff who were feel fearful for their own health, you know, if, if they were, you know, in that 60 plus age group or, or had pre-existing respiratory complications or other health complications. We had people who are, are taking care of, of sick or, or older uh, parents or grandparents, uh, people with newborn babies. You know, there were lots of people who were very fearful of coming to work or who were just unable to come to work due to their own uh, childcare needs. So, so that of course created a hardship uh, programmatically and, and providing treatment, but also I think perpetuated that sort of rumor mill because all of a sudden, why is she not here? Does she have COVID? It, it just, it, was she sick yesterday? Oh yeah. I heard her cough yesterday. And it was like, Oh my goodness. Okay. Every- everybody um you know yeah that that was kind of crazy yeah you know and you got to keep your pulse on that and you you want to be able to hear the rumors and so i think there's there's a big point that you referenced here about the culture of transparency that you guys have when you come into a crisis situation you have to have that culture established right it can't be something that you suddenly build out of nowhere because if that trust factor isn't there if they don't believe what you're telling them or if you haven't been transparent with them in the past and suddenly are then then there's not the trust to believe the communications that are coming so a hundred percent a hundred percent really want that backup built you know that's that's long term and saying hey if this crisis situation ever comes about we want a culture where people believe what we're saying. <laughs> it's important. It, it, no, you're, you're spot on, Nick. I mean, you know, and, and, and unfortunately, due to a, a couple leadership changes that happened really right right at the time, right at the start of COVID, that was a, 
that was difficult. Thankfully, and, and this isn't anything about me personally, but, but you know, other than I've, I've been here with uh, Farnham Center since 2007. So people do, you know, know me, I've worked in many different positions, people do know me and trust me. So, so we did have that benefit that that was kind of, you know, despite the other leadership changes that that really were pretty difficult insofar as that trust and transparency and, hey, what's going on with that? There there was at least, you know, and, and it's not just me. We have a, a few other, we have, a, you know, one of our, our directors at our, our main location, our, our Queen City Ave in, in Manchester location. She's been here since 2008. Uh, you know, we have some some leadership positions that are filled by some very long-term staff, which uh, which was super helpful. Yeah. And then, you know, the other piece there is the, well, it's a rumor mill or gossip or just general problems that happen even in everyday operations. If you don't have that trust there, no one, you know, there's a split between management and the frontline staff. And if the frontline staff isn't yep. telling you what they think, then there's no way for you to address that. So having that relationship super critical so that you can hear what everyone's saying and then can address it and communicate effectively. Yeah, that's a huge takeaway from from this. You know, I think that a lot of people when we talk about, okay, so, you know, what are the takeaways, you know, and I'm sure we'll, we'll get there in this call, but you know, what are the takeaways and, and what should we make sure we do differently, you know, people automatically kind of go to that okay, we need to make sure that we always have PPE, you know, those type, which is absolutely true, 100%. But it's, it's those less tangible pieces that I think we really need to, to continue to focus on and make sure that, that they are in place, that, that, as you said, culture of transparency. Because when, when crisis happens, that, that's, what, that's what staff want. They want to know, really tell me what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. So on the staffing piece, I mean, that's a challenge that a lot of our clients have been facing. I'm sure other providers across the country have been facing as well. How did you address that? So you had less staff coming in. What what did you do? Yeah, so that was absolutely the biggest challenge right off the bat, particularly in our medical detox unit. So we... So the PPE and the staff shortages, those were the, the two issues right away, right? We did not have access to the PPE that, that, that we needed. We had a really hard time getting access, like I think most, most treatment providers, but also those staff shortages. You know, what I, what I did not want when every day when we had, okay, and three more staff are now out indefinitely, and tomorrow four more staff are out indefinitely. And, you know, and that's, that's one of the reasons we had those morning calls with all managers so we could shift staff. Oh, you know, Chris, our, our director up at our Webster Place location in Franklin, New Hampshire, okay, you have four counselors out today. Okay, we need to send you a couple counselors from Manchester. Okay, and, and you know, that kind of stuff. It, the, the biggest problem was actually in our medical detox unit, because those are the positions, you know, our, our nurses, and our medical providers, NP or, or, or MDs, I can't fill in for those, right? Are <laughs> uh, you know I can fill in for any other position uh, here. I'm a, I'm a licensed counselor. Um, you know we have a lot of management that can you know pinch hit. I can go run an IOP if I have to. That's cool. But uh, I, I can't go go be a nurse on our detox unit, and uh, I can't prescribe you know uh, our, our detox protocol meds. Obviously, so that was our biggest concern. We lost honestly about. Who close to two thirds of our nursing staff in wow. four days? Wow. Yeah, it was. Um, and 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 that's a lot for us. We don't have. I mean, our, our detox unit was twenty five beds, so we didn't have you know a, a ton of uh, of of FTE on that on that unit. 
So that was a major problem. We we had to for for safety uh, safety wise, we had to stop all admissions. I mean, the medical detox unit, I was, I was fearful of again, because I, I, I can't go fill in. And, and when I say I, not just me, but of course other managers, right. But also we have some other, you know, we have a residential facility up in Franklin. That's a 42 bed male residential facility. If half the staff, I mean, really, we were looking at numbers where in one day without notice, we could have had almost half the staff out. We didn't at that location, thankfully. But yeah, we had to prepare for that. That would create, you know, really, it, it wouldn't be safe, obviously. So we had to really keep, you know, the, the safety of our staff and clients, that had to be our priority over, you know, our budget and revenue and all of those things that, of course, I had to keep in the back of my head, but the safety of our clients and staff had to be number one. And so we actually, for about six days, did stop admissions to all programs altogether, which was an incredibly difficult decision. We absolutely, you know, I'm on social media too. I see all the LinkedIn articles and, you know, now more than ever, we need to band together and provide treatment. Absolutely. I'm in a hundred percent agreement with that. But when you're facing uh, losing two thirds of your nursing staff in a matter of four days, yeah, it's not safe to, to keep admitting people to our medical detox unit when, when I don't know that I'm going to have nurses to care for them tomorrow. So, so we did for about six days, stop admissions to all programs, regroup. We, we focused a ton on, on getting the appropriate PPE, which brought some staff back to work. Um, you know, some of those staff who have sick parents or grandparents at home um, that, that they were fearful of coming to work without, you know, having an N95 mask. Once we obtained some of that PPE, some staff were able to return to work, which was really helpful, obviously. And so we were able to, uh, after I think it was six days of, of no admissions altogether, we did reopen admissions and we did reduce, reduce capacity at all of our locations in order, again, to make sure that uh, given a staff to client ratio, and this was even before this, all of the, the real strict social distancing guidelines came out. But we needed to make sure that we had an appropriate staff to client ratio. And so we did reduce census pretty significantly at at most of our programs initially. So, I mean, I think that's the real challenge there is how did you put that decision making criteria into place? So like you had safety as number one. You know, did you guys did you guys actually have a formal framework that you ended up putting together or did that kind of just did it just kind of fall into place over time as, you know, emergency decision after emergency decision had to be made? Like, how, how did that evolve? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. And it's kind of a combination of both. We have, you know, we, we, we had a, a tracking sheet, this incredibly detailed Excel tracking sheet that was tracking every single day, every single staff uh, outage. And so we were able to, based on that, after having about two, a week and a half or two weeks of that, we were able to predict, you know, because some staff would, they would be out for, you know, a few days, though, they could find childcare on some days, but not others. And, you know, all of that, we were able to predict the patterns and to anticipate how much, how many counselors, and, and we were kind of pooling resources and looking at the agency. Again, we have four different locations, but we were looking at the agency at large, how many counselors based on the pattern that we've seen in the last couple of weeks that we had tracked with a lot of detail, how many counselors, how many direct support staff, how many physicians, how many nurses can we anticipate having based on that data 
on any given day. And then looking, knowing the staff to client ratio that, that we need, uh, that's how, that's how we made those numbers. That's interesting. So if you look at it from a, a kind of a process standpoint, you said, let's get the data first. So we're going to go, we're going to create this tracking document and we're going to get as much data as possible in this evolving situation. And then once we have that yep. data, then we're also going to have a criteria of a framework for decision-making. So number one is safety. Exactly right. Number two is staff ratios, for example, and then combining those two pieces. Interesting. Uh, any further elaboration on that? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it was a, it was <laughs> It was not an easy decision, you know, um, and and when, you know, there were days that we were way overstaffed and we felt like, you know, w- w- that we made the wrong decision. Wait a minute, you know, because obviously, you know, we are a business and, you know, our our our, our margins are, are not great. You know, we, we have a high percentage of, of Medicaid folks. There was a in New Hampshire, there was a, a, a very significant uh, change in Medicaid reimbursement rates January 1st of 2019. So we were already dealing in a very difficult climate financially. So purely from a business perspective, these were not easy decisions to make to to reduce census, to say, no, that 42-bed facility, we are only going to admit 20 people. So on days that that are, are the data that we had, that it predicted accurately, and, and we really only did have enough staff to accommodate those 20 clients, it seemed like, okay, this is absolutely what we have to do. But there were days that for whatever reason, you know, different things happened, and all of a sudden, we had almost all of our staff. And so we were way, way overstaffed. And, and we would start questioning, you know, okay, hold on, did, did, you know, is this overkill? Can we admit more? And, you know, that questioning ourselves over and over, uh, for sure, happened. And, uh, you know, but, but we, we adhered to, uh, you know, we, we remained dedicated to, to getting the data and to being able, you know, putting surveys out to our staff a lot about, you know, exactly what's going on with their, with their child care you know, with, with their health, we had our, our HR team working, you know, you know, because some of that information is, is definitely private and they don't need to share that with, with their direct, you know, supervisors, but we had our HR team working really closely with our staff so that we could just continue to anticipate when we could increase census uh, again. Wow. Wow. Staff also have the potential to step up. Uh, but, you know, at Farnham, did you see either of those uh, where staff were, you know, being, becoming more difficult to manage and actually creating problems? And then did you have some that stepped up and really um, helped you guys out? Absolutely. You know, for sure, there, there, there were staff who, you know, I could say were, were very panicky. I do think, actually, surprisingly to me at the time, most of the staff who, who kind of had a real strong adverse reaction to this had uh, all pre-existing health conditions, and so it, it made sense a little bit. There were a couple, you know, going back in in, in my mind, who I was like, what, you know, you know, who who identified, no, 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 I, I'm not safe to be at work, and you know, it, it it didn't make much sense, you know. So so there were definitely some panicky staff. Um, there were definitely staff who who for sure wanted to to know that we were following the CDC guidelines, right? This sure. was a time, especially at the beginning, that, I mean, so much information was flooding the media. And not just, you know, not all of it was coming directly from the CDC, right? We have, you know, Fox News on one end, we have CNN on the other end, and and, and these messages are coming out. I'm not advocating for or against either of those, but, but the 
spin on on some of what the CDC recommendations was and and really causing this this panic. You know, staff were coming in saying, what are you going to do about this? And what do you, you know, why aren't we, um, you know, why aren't we taking temperatures of every staff person who's coming in the door? We are doing that now. But that was, you know, way at the beginning. And, and it was really, there was a lot of pressure, you know, to just kind of, okay, we're, you know, we're, we're really, really trying to take things a step at a time. We're trying to follow uh, every single guideline that's coming out. But as I referenced earlier, the guidelines were changing so rapidly. We would put so much energy into creating a really detailed policy or SOP regarding staff or regarding admission, you know, for clients. And then things would change, you know, a day or two later. And it was like, wow, all that work was, was for naught. And here we go. We were constantly behind the eight ball. So that was really difficult. And, and I understood staff's concerns. It was, you know, not the easiest thing personally to manage. Sometimes I just wanted to, you know, scream and say, I'm doing the best I can. <laughs> you know, I'm a human being too. Hold on. But, uh, but I, I think really what I was more impacted by, and, and this is a huge win for us and a, and a huge takeaway, was that there were many staff who really, really stepped up and rose to the occasion during this this crisis. You know, one thing that that my my previous boss and and mentor uh really kind of kind of drilled into me early in my management career was, you know, always be looking at uh where's your bench is, is how she said it. You know, where where are the staff, where are the up and coming staff within the organization, you know, who already who already know our culture, who already know our treatment philosophy, that we can we can grow into exceptional leaders within this organization. You know, where's your bench? Where are your people who are shining? And um, th- that's a big takeaway from this, you know, looking at kind of just the, the positive sides of it, is that we were able to identify several staff that that really stepped up, showed leadership potential, showed true leadership, not even just potential, but during times when when some other people were panicking and, you know, getting kind of amped up, some of these staff members were able to, and and, and some of these staff are not even in, in management positions, and they were able to, to really kind of see the bigger picture, advocate for things in an appropriate way, and, and really kind of help keep the calm, which was so helpful because there's only, you know, our, our senior leadership team at Barnum is, is quite small. So we were hugely dependent on our, our next level managers and then even those other staff who who stepped up and were super helpful. So that was a huge win for us. I have, you know, this this list in my head of, of people that I'm like, all right, I've got my eye on them because <laughs> they did wonderfully through this. Oh, that's great. You know, it's interesting. A lot of comments we've had from clients as well is that the the staff situation was actually more difficult to navigate than the patients. Like patients kind of, especially after, you know, everyone knew what was going on, you know, patients were calling and they knew what was going on and they were admitting anyway, you know, so they were pretty comfortable with things, whereas maybe sometimes the staff weren't. Did, did you see a difference in that or how did were you balancing staff versus patient concerns? Yeah, I agree with that 100%. You know, our, our, our patients, of course, are, you know, our, our, our patients, our clients, they, they come first. They're the clients we're serving. That's what we're here to do is, is serve their needs and, and provide them treatment. Obviously, with that, we care a ton about our staff. We, uh, you know, the Farnham family, you know, staff members will email. It's, it's really cute, kind of cheesy, but super cute. They'll email, you know, hashtag Farnham family and, you know, all this stuff that they've created amongst themselves. It's wonderful. But uh, so we, you know, care about them a lot, their safety, but, but the patients have to come first and, you know, the care of them. But you're exactly right is that what I did see 
is that most patients, there were some outliers, but but most patients were really just happy to be coming into a, a, a facility that was taking care of them. I mean, a lot of our clients were, were you know, it's and, and I, I don't even mean just, just a homeless population. Sure, we have a percentage of, of, of clients who come in from a, from a homeless uh, standpoint, but I'm talking about just people who were in situations where they were maybe, you know, unsafe with, with their partners, certainly physically and, and medically unsafe, you know, with their use pattern. And they come in, they're being fed every day. They have a, a, a safe place to stay. They have 24-hour support of staff. And and ultimately, you know, one of the points, we have a, a wonderful medical director, Dr. Lavalli, who's been with us for, oh my gosh, you know, over, I wish I knew the number, but over 10 years. And he, he, he always kind of brought me back to this point, you know, when we would, you know, really get hyper-focused on, okay, we have to make sure that, you know, every single client is following, you know, the, the, the six-foot social distancing and every single client's wearing a mask. And, and if, you know, I, I say that lightly, not to trivialize it. Yes, we have to continue to remind our clients they have to keep their masks on, they have to remain six feet apart. All of that stuff is very important. But one thing that he kept drawing me back to was that, you know, Kathleen, no matter what, no matter what happens with our clients, they are going to be better off having come in here and 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 gotten physically healthier. Physically, you know, uh, their their immune systems are going to be better, even better, so that if they, you know, were to contract COVID, if, when they're here or when they leave, they're going to, you know, inevitably, undoubtedly, be in a much better physical position to be able to to get through you know this illness and and I thought that was a really interesting point of his and I kind of did kind of keep going back to that when I would start to get you know nervous uh, about are we making sure that every single client is following every single guideline every you know 24 hours a day you know and and he, and he was right you know client and and that's how the clients felt they were here they were getting cared for and and they're getting healthier literally by the day that they're here so if you know god forbid you know, they, they do contract this illness or, or another illness. When they leave, they're going to be in a much better position than, than they would have if they had just remained out there. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, that's something that we really talk through with clients a lot as well is it's better than, you know, with you than out there because, God, they're, they're isolated, they're stuck at home, um, you know, maybe mm-hmm. they're going through massive withdrawals because they don't have access anymore. Uh, and as you said, like, you know, for the average person, this is not really uh, a high threat level for, you know, the coronavirus. It's really, you know, for people that are immunocompromised or um, right. much older. And so the the risk isn't there. But obviously, if you're, you know, still in heavy drug use and your immune system is weak because of that, then, yeah, you are at risk. So by That's getting exactly healthier, right. you actually have a better chance of um, surviving it if you did contract it. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So looking at all of this, right? I mean, this was just a lot to go through. You had obviously Corona, you had um, some changes in leadership, you know, you had everything that's going on around there. You know, looking back, is there anything that you wish you had kind of been prepared for or had done differently, you know, learning experiences for the next time? Hopefully this not the next time. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. You know, certainly one thing pops to mind, it pops into mind immediately. It was about, and I, I know I, I previously wrenched, uh, mentioned these management calls that, that we have. Uh, they were every single morning for, gosh, a, a, a solid six weeks at least. And then we, you know, put dropped them down to, to two, two mornings a week. And now we have them uh, once weekly. But 
it occurred to me only a few weeks ago that even I, you know, I, I felt it in the buildings, in our programs, but even I was in this kind of, my state of mind was such that I was looking to just kind of get through the day and keep my head above water. And, you know, okay, just, you know, looking at me, we had to change programming, we had to reduce census, we, you know, all of the stuff that, that we've talked about. But it was kind of like really treading water. Okay, keep your head above water, just keep your nose to the grindstone, do what you need to do, you know, today, get through the day, you know, and, and it became clear to me only a few weeks ago, that wait a minute, hold on. I need to make some changes internally as the leader of this organization. I, I, you know, this is the new normal. It was, I was kind of looking at it almost like, okay, that, you know, we just got to keep getting through this, get through this, get through this, get through this. And then it's going to like, what, go back to normal, even though intellectually I knew that wasn't going to happen. Right. But it still my mindset. And, and I think just even the, the way I was acting, the energy I gave out was, was that like, yep, let's just get through this. Let's just get through this as opposed to, this is really the new normal and that's okay. And how are we gonna, you know, really get, get back to this sense of all loving what we do in, in a less panicked sort of rushed way, not just trying to keep our heads above water, but really trying to, to, to provide, you know, continue to provide the excellent treatment that we do and look toward the future. And I don't mean the future, just getting out of coronavirus. I mean, the future, what other great things can we do? And it occurred to me, like I said, really only a few weeks ago. In hindsight, I wish that that had occurred to me earlier. <laughs> that because that I think that you know that stuff, that energy, that feeling, and it wasn't anything I, that I was saying. I wasn't going around saying just get through the day, everybody, just get through the day. But it was just that mindset. And I wish that that had occurred to me earlier because the feeling has definitely changed since I. I mean, I kind of outed myself and said, "Look, guys, you know, on this management call." It occurred to me that that this is kind of how what's been in my head. I suspect it's been in a lot of people's heads. You know, let's just get through this, and let's not just get through this anymore. Let's let's really get in this and uh, and and figure out you know what do we need to do and what can we keep doing and and what great things can we start to add because this is our new normal uh, our new normal and uh, and like you know let's let's start loving our jobs again rather than just trying to survive our jobs. And it's just a mentality that I think has to start at the top. And, and I, you know, that's a huge, uh, that, that's huge. I wish that that had occurred to me, you know, maybe a month earlier would have been good. I understand it at the beginning, <laughs> but I wish that that had occurred to me, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, six weeks ago instead of three weeks ago or something. Yeah. That's interesting. You know, I actually had a learning experience in like that early on in my leadership career. So, um, as most people know, I used to do school turnarounds and so you'd come in and things were just a mess, right? Things were just a mess from an operations standpoint, from HR, from staff. You know, staff were incredibly upset. There were problems, just lots of stuff going on. And so when I would come in, you know, it was a lot of urgency, right? A lot yeah. of stuff that needed to be done now. So I would always take some time to build operations and systems and things like that to you know, make it easier going forward. But the piece of feedback I actually got from a staff months in uh, on one assignment 
was, you know, I'm like, you know, things are going well. We're starting to get this under control, but we're still missing some things. What's going on? And the staff member said to me, she says, well, Nick, it's actually the energy. She says, you know, people see you moving fast all the time. Um, They, you know, when they come to you, you seem to be really busy all the time, you know, and it, it was the energy and the vibe that was given off, you know, so I wasn't trying to put stress on staff we, that wasn't being communicated um, verbally, but it was coming off non-verbally just from how fast I moved through, through the building. <laughs> you know, that was interesting. You're, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. All of a sudden I was in, you know, many more meetings with, with Easter Seals executive leadership team and many more meetings with Farnham leadership team and necessary meetings. Yes. Cause we did, we had to, you know, completely revamp programs. We had to make some really significant decisions. We had to create all new policies and SOPs. All of those meetings had to take place. But it, to to staff, I was so unavailable, really. Or, or in my mind, I wasn't because, you know, I always have my phone just text me and say, hey, I need yeah. you and I'll come out was what was in my mind. But it was it was exactly that. The energy that I was giving off was like, whoa, she is just way. You know, I had I had staff. I had we have a wonderful uh, housekeeping staff. And, you know, she would come up to me. And it, again, it didn't occur to me until a few weeks ago, but she'd been doing it for like the last two months saying, how are you? Are you okay? And and I'm thinking, you know, it, like, why it didn't occur to me at the beginning? I don't know. But it, a few weeks ago, I thought, oh my gosh, like that's the energy I'm giving off. So much so that this lovely woman who's been working for us is, is in this like caretaker mode of me, you know, in, in the senior vice president position. And I'm like, oh boy, I need to make some changes here. I need to, you know, with intention, go out and slow down, you know, and, and with intention, open my door, even though I feel like I don't have time to do that. But that has been huge. And I know that that sounds maybe kind of foo-foo for other, you know, uh, you know, execs out, out there, but it's huge. And, it, and in my experience, it, it has to start at the top. And that's, you know, the, the, the number one thing that, that I have to make sure to continue doing, even over the, do the policies have to get written? Yeah, they do. But this is more important because if I don't have a healthy staff and I don't have that that good feeling that Farnham has really always had clients anymore <laughs> and we're not going to provide excellent treatment. And so it's all going to be for naught. The policies will, will, will be useless. So, you know, yeah, in hindsight and going forward, do we need to make sure that we have PPE on stock and do we need to make sure that we have, you know, our emergency action plans really solidified? Yes. All of that, you know, more tangible stuff. Yes, absolutely. But I think that, that this other stuff that I'm pointing toward is actually significantly more important. Yeah, those are the game changers. I mean, we talk about that a lot on the show, but even like I said, from my own experience there, um, the vibe that I gave off at the time made me unapproachable, you know, because I remember asking a staff Mm -hmm. member one time, like, well, why didn't you come to me with this before? And they're like, well, you just seem so busy. I didn't want to bother you. Right. Yep. Yep. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. The culture starts at the top and it, it is it's a lot of intentionality from leadership and really controlling the way that you're perceived. You know, I think one of the biggest struggles for me and, and for a lot of leaders that I've trained over time is that other people's perception is your reality. So it doesn't matter what you think or how you're approaching it, frankly, I mean, if everyone else believes you're you're doing it differently. <laughs> oh, uh, you're 100% right. And that's what we teach our clients. That's what we teach our clients. Yeah, <laughs> you know, right. about that separate realities that I, that I referenced earlier. And it doesn't mean that they're right or I'm wrong, but they're right for them. 
what they think is their reality. And, and no matter what's in my head, that's what's real for them. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah I always give the yeah. example of high school, right? You know, let's say you had that nasty rumor going around about you or a friend. Well, it didn't matter if it was true or not, right? Just the fact mm-hmm. that other people believed it made your life a living hell. So, you know, Absolutely. other people's reality <laughs> is your reality. <laughs> that it, it certainly becomes that. Yep. Uh, um. So great, fantastic, a lot of, lot of good stuff here. You know, looking at it, we've kind of talked about the hindsight piece. Now looking forward, you know, what do you think you're gonna take out of this that you will continue to apply uh, once things norm, or as things continue to normalize? Yeah, um, I think a lot of the stuff that, that, I, that I definitely, you know, have, have already talked about with that, the culture being, you know, paramount that that has to start at the top uh, the communication piece we have to get better with that we as in as in Farnham Center leadership I think we started out really really strong you know I had referenced we were sending you know daily email updates I think that was super important we have been a little less we haven't done that quite as well lately um, I think we need to, to I need to continue uh, looking toward building a, a, a very solid communication plan from from the top down and also laterally across positions you know that each of, of, of the directors at each of our facilities are, are really on the same page through this we have a lot of new staff. That's been a that's been a challenge that I didn't really talk about, but that has come out of it. I talked about, you know, a lot of staff leaving due to, you know, childcare, needing to take care of sick parents due to their own health concerns, you know, totally understandable. But because of that, we have many, many more new staff members than we've ever had in, in my uh, time here. Uh, so, so the training is intense right now. We have you know, uh, uh, so many new staff members. So that culture piece becomes even more important, right? Because this is their first, you know, I could kind of rely on when I kind of, you know, I think lost my way a little bit there, you know, with keeping the door closed and going so fast and, and not, not being present, at least in the staff size momentarily, at least I had the, the, the rapport with the staff who I had worked with for, you know, over a decade, they were like, okay, you know, but I know her and, and I still trust her and that kind of stuff. But all these new staff, they have no idea, right? So, so this culture piece is really, really important. And, and we need to make sure that, that the communication and, and training, cross-training, super important. We've always known that, of course, cross-training is ideal. Everybody knows that. We try to do it. We need a we need a better plan to actually do it because when something like this happens and all of a sudden I have half a building out in one location, but boy, this this building is is pretty well staffed. I need to be able to easily move staff members into the different locations and 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 have that go smoothly. So I don't know if that makes sense. I yeah. kind of just went stream super of consciousness helpful. there, but <laughs> yeah, super helpful. Well, I really appreciate all the information, Kathleen. You know, if someone wants to reach out to you or contact Farnham, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, absolutely. So my direct contact is uh, I have a cell phone number that I use for everything. Uh, 603-540-0563. I also, my email that, you know, we get a ton of email, but I'm always on it, is uh, K, the number one, Murphy at Farnham center.org. And then we have a, uh, a general line, which is uh, 
0.21. That's a um, that's a, a general line to our admissions team. We have a, a wonderful admissions team, super helpful on many levels. So so if people have questions about the program or um, you know even if they're not seeking residential admission necessarily, that 603-263-8021 is uh is is a really great number to to contact well thank you so much i really appreciate the time today it was great having you on the show uh for all the listeners out there this is the recovery executive podcast and we'll see you guys next time thanks so much nick